Well, now we come to our time in God's Word, and we're continuing on in a series in the letter of 1 Thessalonians. And so it'll be helpful for you to have that open in front of you. And admittedly, I completely forgot to get Fabio's uh, slides for the screen this morning, so we're going to have to do the hard work of looking down at your Bible instead of having the verses in front of you. It'll be there for the reading, but then as we go through, it would be helpful to be able to look down together. You can find that on page 988. And so this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're going to begin our, verse, our reading in verse 12. As we start, just a reminder that um, this is a letter. It's written by Paul, one of the early Christian leaders, and he had stopped in the city of Thessalonica on his, one of his missionary journeys, um, and it had gone well, but it had been short. Really, the, the authorities in the town had chased him away within three weeks, and so he had very little time to work with them. But he's writing this letter to encourage them that despite that rough start, they were doing so well. And so he sees in them the signs of being a legitimate church, a gathering of God's presence in the Lord Jesus. And so really he wants to encourage them, and and that's very much the first half of the letter at least. But he also understands that they are a church under pressure. And so that uh, physical suffering and opposition that chased him out of town, uh, they shared in that. Um, but probably even more than that, they shared in, this, in the spiritual and the emotional suffering of needing to wait on the Lord, of needing to believe promises that were mostly invisible, of not being able to trust and partake in at least a good bit of the life around them in the city. And so, of course, they would be wondering if it's going well, is it worth it, is this what it's supposed to be like? And so Paul, he's writing that to tell them that just as God's grace had established them as a church, they would need God's grace to continue. And actually, his letter would be that for them, that this letter would be a source of God's grace in their life. And really, that's been our prayer, and hopefully our experience as well, is that as we receive this letter, this word from God, we receive not just his words, but we actually receive his grace. And so I hope you have experienced that God would tell you that he loves you and is encouraged by you and has a gracious plan to sustain you, and really to sustain us. And so with that in mind, let's come to our reading as we get close to the end here. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Hey, Father, we do want to ask for your help. We want to trust your faithfulness that you would do what you have promised. And so would you give us your grace even this morning, and would you make it fruitful so that we would be gracious as well? And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, just a little context. So we are just about to the end of this letter, and so we'll, we'll make it through mostly verse 22 this morning. Then in a couple weeks, Dan, Pastor Danny will finish us off with the very end. As we come to this last little bit, though, I think this passage in particular is striking in a number of ways, even though it's probably forgettable in other ways. And so if you've read much of the Bible, it might be forgettable because you, you're kind of used to endings like this. They seem to be like the laundry list of extra instructions that get tacked on at the end. Even the, the translators here, they've come up with the original heading of final instructions. It's kind of like, the, you know, that phone call from your parents, the, oh yeah, and by the way, at the end, all that extra stuff they need to tell you. And so although this ending, it might seem scattered, it's certainly not random, that Paul's heart for this church to encourage them and care for them, that's what's driving this kind of collection of instructions. And in that way, it's striking because it's so different from what Paul has written already. And so I was even just remembering when I preached last in chapter 2, my chapter had zero commands, no instructions. But yet here at the end, we have 19. 19 commands all in these verses. And so for Paul to have these 19 instructions, um, it should impress us with the, the seriousness of his final words. And even just look at what he says. He uses words. He says, we ask, really it's we urge. And then we urge, see to it, make sure this happens. And so these are critical final instructions. And so in that way, I want us to think of them kind of like a pathway forward. That as Paul, he imagines the future of this church, he's thinking of the road forward for them. What will that pathway be like? And so if the whole letter was an encouragement about grace under pressure, how God's grace would be sufficient despite the pressure, they had what they needed, not just to survive, but to thrive. And so now as Paul is going to sign off and he's looking at the path in front of them, he wants them to know how God's grace will continue to work. That as they continue down this particular path, God's grace will be big enough for them. And you probably noticed that the pathway forward, it's all about relationships. The existence of this church in God's grace was going to be a relational journey. And so you know how those relational journeys work, right? And so every good story, it's usually about relationships of individuals or a group of people from point A to point B, from start to finish, and you know how that journey usually goes. I was thinking of one particular example, and so, as you know, I used to work with teenagers, and we would do one particular program. It was a week long where we would take a group of 8 to 10 high school students, and they would go to Martha's Vineyard, a beautiful place, but they would be in the dish room. And so it's for a middle school program, and so there would probably be about 70 middle school students plus leaders, and so maybe 110 people altogether. And this small group of 8 to 10 high schoolers would be in the dish room doing all the dishes for the program. And so at least an hour and a half every meal, seven days straight. And so you can imagine the relational journey of that type of program. And so they get there initially. Many of them didn't know each other, and so they're nervous or shy. They get there early so you can have a couple days of fun. And so they start to get to know each other, and maybe there's some excitement. Those first couple times in the dish room, it suddenly turns to kind of serious, maybe a little concern. I don't know what I signed up for eventually then leading to kind of the stress and the pressure of things going wrong, of this being too much, usually leading to some type of blow-up, kind of relationally people sniping at each other or slacking. And then you need to rebuild. 
kind of reform the relationships. And of course, at the end, what you're going for is you're, you're building a mature community. People are not only friends who not only share Christian faith together, but would actually be, be tried together, learn what it's like to serve and to be in community. That's really the point of the program. The dishes are only a side note. The point is to try to give these students an experience that molds them into a community of grace. That's what Paul is wanting to do this morning. And if you think about that relational pathway, there's usually two ways that that breaks down. One is a temptation to give up, usually in the middle, right around that kind of blow-up stage. And that usually looks like a couple of different things. And so leaving, and so maybe you've been in a situation or a family or a church where there was a blow-up and maybe you or others left. Or we might limit our exposure and so we only give or expect so much. So this has been a little disappointing and so I'm just going to lower my expectations. Or we can lash out. And so I respond back, when this isn't going well, I'm going to lash out against other people. And my guess is you've probably experienced those type of things. The other challenge with this relational pathway is really seen from the outside, and so maybe even from those outside the church, that they look at this relational pathway and they see dysfunction, and it's a turnoff. And so maybe disappointment that the church doesn't appear to be all that much, or disillusionment that what they claim and how they act seems to not match up. And maybe if you don't have a church, that might be your fear or concern that that's what the church is like. But hopefully we'll have a surprise this morning because, you know, your complaints about the church might actually be the same ones that God has. You're in good company. Your complaints about the church might be the same ones that God has. And yet, God still believes in the church. He still believes in the church. And so can you. Can we. And so our goal this morning is to really see how God's grace works through this relational pathway to build a gracious church. You see, it's God's plan. It was there at the very end of the passage that God himself would do it. It is his plan, but what will it look like? And so that's our job this morning, to see how he would grow grace in healthy relationships. And so first, we're just going to look at this graciousness with leaders, that the gracious church is gracious with leaders. It's one that loves and respects hardworking leaders. And if you were going to poll people outside of the church or even within, if you were going to poll them about what is your issue with the church, church leaders would end up being very high. I realize that. If you have issues with me, please tell me. But the surprise here this morning is that Paul's concern, at least right here, is not with the leaders, but with the graciousness of the church family in relation to them. You know, in the New Testament, God has a lot to say about leaders and sometimes encouraging, sometimes challenging. But this time, he wants to instruct how we relate to them. And so look back at the passage. Verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And so we ask, it could be a little stronger. It's something like um, to implore especially because the person asking has a special position. And so Paul and Timothy and, and Silvanus, they've started this church, and so now they're writing back to them, and they're imploring them, would you listen to us about this? They really want this. Well, what do they want? Well, they, it's respect and love. And notice why, why these things should be given. Not because of their charisma, not because of their success, not even because of their authority or their position. But you, did you notice why Paul wants 
this church family to respect and love their leaders. If you look down, it's because they labor and because they work. In many ways, this is a kind of a correction about many of the things we tend to get wrong about leadership. And so on the one hand, you might have the authoritative leader, and so you might raise them up for the wrong reasons, or they take power and take ultimate influence. You see, they're in a position of power, or they're gifted or successful, and so they're way up here. You might think about the staff leader. You know, they're just the worker, the staff. You keep them down. You treat them like a worldly servant, people who get things done. That's how we treat our leaders in the world usually. Keep them on a high pedestal or don't really care about them. They're just getting things done. But that's not what it's like in the church because Paul, he says, I want to see a gracious church where people respect and love their leaders. Why? Because they're working hard at the job that God had given them. He describes them as those who labor. Literally, the word is there, those who get fatigued by the work. It's not the work of the aristocrat, but the work of the servant, the laborer, the day worker. See, they're supposed to be over you, Paul says. It's this word of standing before. Standing before you, both as an example and as a protector, a caregiver. And Paul, he tells us what this would look like, at least in part. He says that they would admonish you, that they would put in your mind, that they would caution, that they would warn You see, their work, their toil that would make them fatigued is that they would care about God's people. The hard work would be caring about them enough to see and to say. And how are we supposed to relate to leaders like that? Paul says, respect and love. You really need both, I think. And so if you think about it, uh, respect without love, what that would look like is we would value what the leader does, but emotionally we would disconnect. We would not care about them as people. And I think there is a temptation to treat our leaders like that, that um, we would see them as people who are getting things done. They have all the advantages and all the benefits, and so what more do they need? They certainly don't need our affection. But if you've been a parent, you know how this is. You know, early on in a parent, really, for most of your life as a parent, um, it's actually really hard because your children don't see you as a person. And then eventually you hope there's that one moment when they're a little bit grown up, they're past college usually, when all of a sudden they might ask you a question like, how are you doing? I hope you've asked your parents that. But that's the great shock that this person has suddenly not only valued you, you hope they do, value you for what they do, but would they value you for who you are, respect and love? Well, what about love without respect? Well, that might be like a parent as well, and so a parent, you might see your child doing some sort of household chore, but doing it poorly, and you might say, oh, bless your heart. You're trying, right? That might be love without respect for our leaders. They're the best we have. They're doing their best. Love without respect. But that's not what is going on here. These leaders, they've been given by the Lord. They're working hard at it. There's no evaluation of whether they're the best at it or if it's the most efficient, It's enough that for the Lord, they are working for the sake of the people. And a gracious church looks at people like that with high respect and great love. And so if you think about the application here early on, um, it might be helpful to try to empathize with why these instructions were, were necessary from Paul. Why would a church under pressure need to be instructed to be gracious? Well, I want you to think about the situation of this church. At this point, the church might be a couple years old. But really, they all started at the same place. 
Imagine being at a church where your leaders were right there with you when you became a Christian. You all became a Christian at the same time. You've grown up together, and yet now these are out in front of you. It must have been tempting to think that maybe these leaders weren't doing such a great job. Maybe if Paul was there, it would be going better. Maybe if they had a little more talent, a little more of God's anointing, there would be more results. Or you can think about it, a word of admonishment. It might be especially hard to hear a word of correction from these leaders who are just right there with you. And your life seems to be in a standstill anyway. Wasn't Jesus supposed to be back already? Weren't things supposed to be going better? Who were these leaders to correct you? So if we can relate to any of those situations or feelings, then we can probably relate to this instruction. And so a couple points of application. One, let's look for and value leaders who work hard for the Lord's work. Let's look and value leader, look for and value leaders who work hard. You see, you primarily don't need leaders who will lead a movement. I got a text the other day from a pastor friend of mine who was asking if I was familiar with this one um, religious leader. He's somebody who travels and does conferences and things like that, and I hadn't heard of him. And so I looked at his website, and on his website it was listed four or five different movements that he led. He led this movement and then that movement and then that movement. And I thought to myself, I wonder if he's leading people. I wonder if he's caring for people. You see, in the world, you might want a leader who would actually lead forward this great movement of momentum, but Paul, he wants leaders who would lead backward, who would step out and would actually care for people. People who are given by God to take on the labor with conviction and a willingness to work hard. So those are the leaders we want to be looking for, but we also want to expect leaders who would care enough to admonish us. Expect leaders who would care enough to admonish us that God has designed it that there would be those who are working hard over us and so away from us in a way, but they would be looking out for us and they'd be willing to pass on the Lord's word, his correction. So I wonder how recently have you been corrected? When's the last time you were admonished? You know, I think if we're never in a position to receive correction and to receive it, with respect and love, I wonder if we're in a gracious position. So relationship with leaders, that's where our grace will be seen. They're hardworking, and for that, we love and respect them. And so next down the pathway, we're walking forwards. This grace towards leaders, it leads to then more people joining the care team. This is where Paul goes next. Look again. Verse 14 And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. You see, a gracious church is one that patiently cares for those in need. This probably isn't a surprise. You kind of expect the church to care for the needy. But there are some distinctive qualities here of the, the type of care that Paul has in mind. And so they're under pressure. They're probably questioning if it's all going as it's supposed to. And Paul's going to say yes. God's plan and his grace would be sufficient to continue to to grow them into a beautiful church. But what would it look like? Actually, patient care for those in need. So first, they're to admonish the idol. And so just like the leaders who would have a word of correction, so everyone would have an eye to care for those around them. 
And especially in mind here are those who are struggling with discipline. That's the word for idleness. It's a lack of discipline. And so they're losing it. They're losing it. Why? Well, I think it could be multiple reasons. One, suffering can often lead to stagnation. We know that. When we're suffering, it's hard to keep going. It could be misunderstanding about what to expect from God and the church. And so it might lead to, to laziness or malaise. And Paul says, all of you, you need to be a lookout for each other. Because what would usually happen with that type of situation? Well, they would slowly drift away. Maybe you would slowly get frustrated with them. You can't do it for them after all. But Paul says, be on the lookout. He also says, encourage the faint-hearted. It's literally the, the little-spirited, those who have lost their passion. So their discipline is fine, but they've lost their passion, their energy. They've lost their courage. And in some Christian circles, I think these might be the worst type of people, the spiritually flat, the downer. But Paul says in a gracious church, these are the people who are seen and encouraged. Why? Of course, because God would see them and God would encourage them. And so the voice of God is often heard through the voice of the church community. And so God would not be surprised that they are little-spirited. Remember what he said to Peter, Oh, you of little faith. See, they were suffering and wondering if they had done something wrong. Perhaps something was going wrong. But Paul says, for them, you encourage. Suffering and waiting, it was actually a sign of something going right. And going right for the church would mean lots of people would have eyes for them. So admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and then help the weak. These are probably the, the physically weak or even the morally weak. And so rather than being cut out of the fellowship or even disciplined, they need help. You see, classically, uh, church discipline is seen as one of the marks of the church. It's a sign of a church being healthy and real that, that we would care about correcting people to come back to Christ. But the mark of the church that should first come is help, that the weak need help. The rebellious need discipline. The weak need help. And praise the Lord that he knows the difference in our life. And let's pray that we would know that with each other. You see, it's not that they should have known better. Thank God that he doesn't treat you like that. Not that they should have been stronger. Remember that Jesus came not to put out the, the smoldering wick or break the bruised reed. You see, the gracious church is not a place for the strong and the put together because the gracious church is never like that. It was a place where the weak were gathered in. They received grace. I think that's why Paul then goes on to kind of summarize this section with be patient with all. Be patient with all. You all need it. And so you can imagine this young, green, untrained church, very little in terms of systems or strategy, People in the church probably doing things not very effectively or courageously or strongly. Paul says there's no room for being fed up and moving on. But he says you need to be patient with them all. It reminds me of that song by R.E.M. Everybody hurts sometimes. Everybody cries. You remember the application? Hold on. Hold on. A little bit different here. Everyone hurts. Everyone needs patience. And so not hold on, but hold on to them. Hold on to them. That when it seems like everyone else is requiring your patience, you hold on to them. And so have you been one of those types in need? The idle, 
the faint-hearted, the weak, the one who needs patience. Well, thank God that he has given us grace through his church. Have you ever been hard on someone like this? Expecting more, better, might be a way to confess and to be forgiven by God that his graciousness would grow in us grace. And so down the pathway, so graciousness with leaders, we love and respect them, their hard work. We're gracious with those in need. Really, we see everyone in need of patience, including ourselves. And all of this is really, really rising up from a gracious trust in God's plan. I think that's what's going on with this next section, starting in verse 15. You'll notice that verse 15 and verse 22, both of them are bookmarked with this comparison between good and evil. And so it seems to be that Paul has in mind that in this, this battle, this, uh, this transition between good and evil, how is it going to happen? And he says, not by force. And so look in verse 15. He says, see to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good for one another and to everyone. That's hard to do even in the church. And so think about the situation. Some of them are easier. Someone overlooks you. You've done a good job and nobody notices. Or they neglect you. You were the one in need and nobody helped you. They take you for granted. You know, those are just some of the soft or somewhat easy examples. Think about the harder ones. Somebody has said something hurtful to you, especially behind your back. You know, in chapter 4, Paul, he's warning against sexual immorality, and he warns that it can lead to transgression even within the church. Now, talk about a mess there. You see, this is real mess that Paul's dealing with. He says it's evil, and he says, see to it that no one repays evil for evil. You see, this type of ethic, it's a high bar within the church. But surprisingly, Paul, he even applies it outside of the church. He says, in fact, this is how you relate to everyone. Of course, it's the way of life that was founded in Paul's understanding through Jesus. And so, like master, like servant. And so Jesus was the one who, if you remember, he commanded us to love our enemies and pray for those who are against us. And he's the one who exemplified it. Remember that Paul, he tells us that Jesus when we were still enemies, he would go to the cross and to die for us. And Paul, in particular, kind of had a very unique experience of this. As you remember anything about Paul's life, when he, when he was younger, when he wasn't a Christian yet, he was actually a really religious person, but he was very anti-Jesus. So much so that he was persecuting the Christians, um, throwing them in prison and overlooking their execution. Not a nice guy. And Paul, he had this experience where Jesus came to him on the road, and Jesus said to him, his name was Saul then, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And you expect what would come next. You're going to get it now. Why did you pick a fight with me? But yet Jesus saves him, turns his whole life around. And in fact, that word for persecuting is the word for seek. Always seek good. Be passionate about it. Like you're chasing people down, chasing people down to do good. You see, to live like that, it takes a lot of trust to follow God's plan, that good would triumph over evil in the church, not by force or compulsion. It takes a lot of trust to believe that the church wouldn't have to grab the power of the world and win the battle for right and wrong. If we don't have those weapons, what do we have? Well, look what Paul says, verse 16. 
Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. They are all commands, and so they're all active things, not simply um, a motive. And so they're not dependent or flowing from feeling, but they're certainly defining and driving our feelings. And it's like this three-edged sword that's dependent on faith, hope, and love. Remember, that was Paul's big refrain for this church. He says, I see God working in you, and what I see is your faith, hope, and love. It's almost as if now he says those things are going to go forward in these three ways. Prayer, thanks, and joy. And he says these these things actually are the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Do you want to know what God is doing in your life, what he wants to do? Here's a big part. He wants you to be joyful, prayerful, thankful. Really, all three, faith, hope, and love, are required for these three. Just think think of it with prayer. To be someone who prays regularly is actually, you need to be someone who believes. You got to trust God's promises. You got to hold on to them, even weekly, to say, God, you've promised to do this. Would you do it? You got to be someone who has hope that God would actually be alive and working in the world, that he would be taking it to a good end. And you got to be one who would have love, that you would not be crushed turned bitter, turned in. And so, of course, you would pray for what God's doing in the world, for others. See, this is God's will for your life, to be full of these things, joy, prayer, and thanks. Paul goes on, verse 19. um, He has a couple negatives here, and so he says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Admittedly, we're not going to be able to really uh, tackle the issue of, of New Testament prophecy here. Um, it's kind of a, a big issue of how we understand what it is and what it was and whether it should continue and just how. But let me give you two of the kind of leading options of how we should understand prophecy because I think they allow us to understand the application even if you don't settle on which one. And so two options. One, prophecy could have been authoritative revelation from God. And so a prophet is simply one who speaks for God. That's kind of our experience in the Old Testament. They would come and they would say, thus says the Lord. This is what God says to you. And so it might be that. And that might have been part of the first century church experience because they did not have this, at least not the New Testament. And so if the message of Jesus was going to go out to all these places, you would need people who would speak it to them, prophets. And so it might have been that. And in that way, it was no longer normal or needed after Um, God had spoken finally in Jesus and through his apostles. That's what Revelation seems to imply at the end, that Jesus says the the revelation is finished. You have it all. Don't add to it or take from it. And so that might have been what's going on here, prophecy, authoritative revelation. Or it might have been not authoritative, new revelation from God, but rather gospel insight or application. And so insight from God for the good of a believer or community. And so still from God in one sense, but not authoritative in the same way. And that's something we probably still experience, that you've heard a sermon or a word from a friend that you realize, that's what I needed to hear. And actually, not I didn't only need to hear it. That's what my life needed in terms of fruitfulness, returning to God and trusting him. Now, if either one of those things are true, I think the principle still applies. Because Paul says, in these cases, don't quench, quiet, or despise, reject. So what would that look like? So don't just reject what God says by his spirit. Don't quench it, I've heard enough. 
Don't despise it. I don't need to hear anything more. But Paul says, welcome gospel words into your life. Test them to make sure they're true. For them, the apostolic message, for us, the Bible. And why would this warning fit with them? Well, gracious people need to continue in need of God. If they were going to be gracious people, they needed to know and trust God more deeply. They needed to continue their experience of relationship with him. They needed to be intimate and close to him. And so they couldn't be good with good enough. And so a gracious church is this great balance of both eager for God to speak while also not being easy or gullible. And I think, Paul, he tells us what it looks like. End of verse 21, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And so holding fast to what is good, you mean you want more of it. I want the goodness, but no room for evil. No form of it. It's all worth avoiding, whether it's bad teaching or bad living. You can imagine for these Thessalonians, so they were expecting Jesus' return, and in the midst of it, they're having to battle all this false teaching, um, people who are coming to claim all sorts of things, even about Jesus' return. And you can imagine they got to the point where they said, no, no, we're just not going to listen to anything. We have the basic gospel. We're not hearing anything more. We're just staying right here. And Paul says, don't quench the spirit. Don't despise the word from God. Test it. Hold tightly to the goodness of God. Avoid all the evil. You could imagine that it might be tempting to feel like that's just too much complexity. Too dangerous to remain in a world. Jesus, take us now. That was what they wanted. Too hard to keep holding on to this invisible reality through joy, prayer, and thanks. Instead, maybe the church would just hunker down and getting on would be good enough. Too uneven to only respond to evil with good. When would that ever work? You see, but Paul, he has great trust here. The gracious church is one that trusts and embodies God's plan because this apparent delay in Jesus' return is actually for his glory and for the good of the church. And so Paul, he ends with this this prayer, very similar to how he started the letter, verse 23 and 24. Now may may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And so we're going to cover this more in the next sermon. But God here, he himself will execute his plan. And so these 19 commands and instructions, Paul says, I know that God, he's going to do this in and through you. And so what the church needs to do now is to continue in God's grace under pressure. That even those under pressure can embody and can become a gracious church. So how to be a gracious church? Paul, he lays out the pathway. It's very practical in some ways, very simple, but it's a pathway of healthy relationships, and so in that way, it's very complicated, difficult. Gracious to leaders, loving and respecting hardworking leaders. Gracious to the needy, patiently caring for those in need. And gracious with God's surprising plan that we actually have to trust and engage that we would take up the tools the strategies of Christ instead of those of the world or our imagination. And so as we come to a close here, I wonder if this has been your experience with the church. Has this been your experience with the church? Within this church, I hope it has been. I hope it's at least been your experience of our shared hope, our desire, what we want to be. 
Or if you haven't settled on a church, I hope you'll give us a chance to be that type of church with you and for you, maybe even despite past experience. But let's all be sure that this pathway to be this type of church, it's going to require a lot of grace. I hope you weren't overwhelmed with the instructions. Paul, he's not, he's not just laying it on before he closes. Instead, he's a, a spiritual parent. He's caring for them. He's reminding them of the way forward. It's a gracious way forward. But that does imply the need for a lot of grace. And so just take note of the situation behind these instructions. They're going to have leaders who are working hard, fatigued. They're going to have to say things to admonish and to correct. And they're going to need to love and respect them for it. There's going to be obstacles to peace, like idle people who don't seem to pull their weight or take their faith seriously. There's going to be faint-hearted people who seem so worn down and dour, not bringing the positive energy that you need in your life. There's going to be weak people who require so much from you and seemingly give you nothing back. And so much patience. So much patience. Everyone is going to seem a bit annoying in one way or another, and they're all going to require your patience. There's going to be sin and mistakes, even evil being done, and you're not allowed to blow off steam or get back. You have to do good to everyone. You have to rejoice even when the circumstances are hard or sad or disappointing. You'll need to pray all the time because you need so much help. You'll need to pursue thankfulness in your life to trust God's goodness. And even when you're guarding against all these temptations and false messages, you're going to have to hear from God. You're going to need to keep your heart open, your mind open to what he wants to say to you. And Paul says all of that's going to require this constant holding on to what is good and always saying no to what is evil. Both options are going to always seem right there in front of you. So very little coasting in this church. You want to put that up on the website? What type of church are we? Is that the type of church you're looking for? The one you want to be in? I hope so. Paul says it is the gracious path. And how is it going to happen? Well, Paul's confidence is with God. He says, he who calls you is faithful. He'll surely do it. And so just as Paul was encouraged with what God has done in this young church, so he is confident that God will continue the work, and so he's happy to share with them the way forward. And they need to hear it from him, because it's very hard to see it when you're in it. In Pilgrim's Progress, it's an allegorical story about the Christian life. There's a scene where Pilgrim, the main character, he's, he's going through this journey of what it means to be a Christian, and he comes to the scene where there's a fire in a fireplace, and, it's, and it's, it's burning well, but there's this man on one side, and he's pouring water on it continually. Always pouring water on it. I wonder if you feel like that's your life. You're trying to do your best, but it's like water all the time. But yet the fire, it's billowing up, getting stronger even, and so pilgrim, he, he asks his guide, he says, what's going on? And he takes him around to the back, and there's a man at the back pouring oil. And the explanation is that for the Christian, it's often very hard to see what would sustain. But the explanation is that the Lord Jesus in his grace would always be pouring abundant grace to actually not only maintain, but to thrive the gospel grace in our life. And not only in your life personally, but in the life of the church. And so let's pray that we would walk forward, trusting God's grace, both for us individually and us together. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, even for this word. We do pray that these instructions would be for us goodness and joy, that we would desire them and seek your grace to start to embody them. Would you make us like this, you who would sanctify us completely? You have been faithful so far. Surely you will do it in the future. Help us to keep believing it together, we pray. Amen.